You may open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. For men and women that know the Bible, they know what Matthew 24 contains. They know that it's the Olivet Discourse of the Lord Jesus Christ because it was given on the Mount of Olives. I'm not going to deal with this word by word because it's either in the outline or in many links that I've attached to the outline. I've laid the foundation. We'll go through it. We'll see its simple fulfillment. But this prophecy is not only in Matthew 24, it's in Mark 13, it's in Luke 21 and Luke 17. The Lord Jesus Christ chose to have this recorded three times in our Gospels. And I hope that you can understand it. We want to think of several things we want to take away from this study this morning. We want to be saved from foolishness that is taught from this chapter in most of the churches of our county. Ninety plus percent of the churches in our county believe that this chapter in its entirety, every single word of it, applies to some future event. We want to see that that isn't true. I want you to see in this chapter the fulfillment of prophecy to confirm your faith in the Word of God and to confirm your faith in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We just read Psalm 45, where in prophecy it was said of the Lord Jesus Christ for Him to gird on His sword and to ride forth and to conquer His enemies, and He did so. That psalm is to be lined up with Psalm 110, Psalm 2. That says, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. That is the most quoted prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Because he did just that with his wicked enemies, his murderers, and the murderers of his prophets and apostles in 70 AD with Roman armies. I want to start in this chapter with verse 35. With verse 35, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, we've got a few minutes and we're going to race through this chapter and I hope I can tie it together in a way that will give you understanding of it in light of what we've already studied the three previous Sundays, two sermons each Sunday. Matthew 24 and verse 35, it should be in the red writing in your Bible. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away. But my words shall not pass away. That is a strong statement to emphasize the fact that he had just said something that men would try to overthrow. He had just said something that was very threatening to that nation. And it was going to look like they got the better hand of him. But his words were going to come to pass. This verse is not a verse teaching the preservation of the Bible. We may use it that way indirectly, but that's not what Jesus was teaching here. What Jesus was teaching here is, I have just told you, in graphic detail, a very specific prophecy, and it will most certainly come to pass. The heavens that you trust in will pass away. The earth that you trust in will pass away. But my words will not pass away. What I have just said will most certainly come to pass, and that includes the verse right before it. Because there has been great effort made to overthrow these words of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I believe them. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and I believe them. I believe them as he stated. And I'm thankful this prophecy is so simple. It starts out with telling us what the theme is. And it concludes right with this 35th verse. 
of telling us the time limit on it. And then it goes on to tell us what we ought to do because of it, but it's really addressed to that generation of Jews because it applies to them. None of you have been to Judea, and you couldn't flee to Judea if you needed to. None of you are going to meet anything in which you're going to run to the mountains. None of you are worried about Sabbath day travel because we don't have a Sabbath day in this country. This is a prophecy to the Jews, and we want to understand that. We have started this morning by looking at Matthew 21, which is a prophecy about the Lord Jesus Christ having a kingdom, letting that kingdom out to the husbandmen of Israel. They refused him, so he miserably destroyed those wicked men and let out his vineyard to others. He took the kingdom from Israel and gave it to the Gentiles after miserably destroying those wicked men. This will be the prophecy of it. Now that was a parable hinting at it. The Pharisees knew he was talking about them, and he was rather plain in his parable. He said he would grind them to powder in Matthew 21, 44. That's, that's pretty plain. Then in Matthew 22, we saw it compared to a marriage where when they mistreated the servants he sent to invite them to his marriage, he miserably destroyed those wicked men and burned up their city. And then gave that again to the Gentiles. We'll see all that here in Matthew 24. But Matthew 24, 35 tells us the importance of this to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only here, but in Mark 13 and in Luke 21, Jesus uses these words to get our attention. This is not wasted filler. Why is the verse here? We had better pay attention to every word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Why is this statement here? Because of the efforts that have been made, especially in recent time, to support Jewish fables by corrupting what Jesus said. Jesus said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. What I've just told you is going to happen, and it's going to happen when I said it will happen, and it's going to happen how I said it would happen, and you can be saved if you'll do what I told you. There's lots of details. You can read and read and read and read of different men who have taken the time, and I have done it before, haven't done it this time, and I'm not going to do it this morning, to understand the fulfillment of the details of this prophecy. Hopefully we've covered enough ground already that you have enough understanding to get that. If you have more interest, there's a 30-page outline on the Internet with enough links to keep you reading for the rest of September, for all of September, if you want to learn about the details and what other men in the past have understood and what's been preached about this chapter. There might be variations when you read some of those men on one, on two, on three verses. Because they cannot overcome their superstition about reading the word clouds and words like that. We'll see that in a moment. There might be variations of one, two, or three verses. But for the most part, this prophecy has been understood until the last 150 years as a 70 A.D. prophecy fulfilled in the destruction of Jerusalem. That's where I'm going to leave it. I'm going to trust the Lord Jesus Christ and what He said. I'm going to trust prophetic language because I've read more than Matthew 24. I've read dozens and dozens of places where clouds were used and clouds weren't intended. It's a figurative description of Jesus Christ coming in judgment. And we'll see that. We want to see it right now. This, this chapter has extremes. We're going to be one extreme. And that is it's been fulfilled. The other extreme is none of it's been fulfilled. 
And then some men try to hold a middle ground by chopping the chapter in half and pulling it apart and putting a 2,000 plus indefinite gap in there. Can't do it, won't do it. Let's go look at Matthew chapter 24. I have to trust. I have to trust that you'll remember the ground we've covered. I have to trust that you've read the chapters that I've given you in your preparatory reading over the last four Saturdays. We have seen this prophesied throughout the Old Testament as old as Deuteronomy. I will shred your cities and your sanctuaries if you disobey me. All the way back in Deuteronomy, and we have built up all the way through the Old Testament. Daniel put a time frame on it in two places. And we moved on into the New Testament. We've looked at other New Testament prophecies. We saw that Paul knew when the wrath was to come upon that generation because it was presently falling when he was still alive, writing First Thessalonians. It's a choice of how you study the Bible when you come to Matthew 24. Are you careful, cautious, and submit to the words of Jesus Christ, especially when he tries to get your attention by saying, Verily, I say unto you, and when he says, Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. You know, when I, when I read something like that, we want to be careful about what his words were. Because he's telling you they're important. And especially because they proclaim him as the great fulfiller of prophecy. A man named John Darby, a man named Edward Irving, a man named C.I. Schofield, and others invented an idea that all of Matthew 24 was future. And 90 plus percent of our city believes that, that Matthew 24 is a future event. You ought to read these men. I don't have time. You can look in the outline and have some speculative fun yourself. These men will say this. Every syllable of Matthew 24 and every syllable of Mark 13 is a future event to occur after the second coming of Jesus Christ. Luke 21 is 70 A.D. Is that hilarious? Luke 21 is identical to Matthew 24 and Mark 13, except Luke just happens to be a little plainer on one expression. Instead of calling it an abomination of desolation, he says it's surrounding armies around the city. But that's what they say, and they go on and on and on. What this is called in most circles is the pre-tribulationary return of Jesus Christ. That means Jesus comes before the great tribulation of this chapter. But yet this chapter tells Christians how to avoid the tribulation. We could go on and on. It's a mess. I don't want any of you to be deceived by it. I don't want any of you to be moved by sound bites like this. Wars and rumors of wars. Wars and rumors of wars is an expression from Matthew 24, and it doesn't apply to this generation. It doesn't apply to the World War II generation or any generation to come. It was a specific description to the Jews listening to the Lord Jesus Christ in which he said, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars, but that is not it. 
Because when my war comes, you won't have to wonder where it is. It won't be a rumor. And these little conflicts going on in the Roman Empire are nothing like what I'm going to do to Judea and Jerusalem. The end is not yet. These are only the beginning of sorrows. But if you listen to anyone on the television or the radio, and you listen to most preachers today, they will just throw out the soundbite, wars and rumors of wars. They're stealing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ out of Matthew 24, when he said, all these things shall come to pass on this generation, and they try to apply it to current events in our generation. Because it makes for good, entertaining preaching. They're wrong. They're totally wrong. And they're liars in the Word of God. And you can know that by looking at verse 34 that tells us so plainly, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. This is how simple I am. If Jesus said it, I believe it. If Jesus told me what I just said is very important, and heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will not pass away, I believe it a little bit more. And I make the time frame of the prophecy help me interpret the prophecy. I don't go the other way around when Jesus told me exactly when it has to occur. I then look at the verses within the prophecy and fit them with prophetic language from the rest of the Word of God. That is what we are told to do in the Bible. Comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And by comparing spiritual things with spiritual, this prophecy is easy. Let's start. Where does it begin? Jesus has been in the temple and he walks out of it in verses 1 and 2, and the disciples say, Mark has an exclamation point, the disciples say, Lord, look at this fantastic temple. Now this temple was built in 456 B.C. by the Jews under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and Ezra with the prophets Zechariah and Haggai encouraging them on, but it was small. Herod the Great spent most of his life adding to it as a favor to the Jews to keep them content with him as their king, appointed by Caesar because he was an Edomite. It was hard for Jews to be content with an Edomite as their king, appointed by Caesar, but they were because he added to the grandeur of this temple. And it was a great, magnificent structure. Historians tell us about it, and the disciples here take recognition of it. Lord! Look at this place. Now, I'm going to tell you some things that it says here, and if you don't see it on your page, it's because it's in Mark 13 or Luke 21. The disciples said, look at these stones. And the stones were huge. Some of the stones were 8 feet thick, 12 feet wide, and 25 feet long. Marble. You've never seen a chunk of marble that big in your life. You've never seen anything like that in your life. And it was coated in gold in many places. It was incredibly beautiful. It was a fortress that Titus said later, if it had not been for God helping him in the war, he would not have been able to take those towers. They were impregnable. From the top of one of the towers looking down at the brook Kydron, it was 700 feet. That's where the devil had taken the Lord Jesus Christ and said, if you cast yourself off the devil, the angels will pick you up and you'll not dash your foot against a stone. That's 70 stories in modern language. It was a huge, beautiful, impregnable fortress and temple all combined together. 
And the disciples were impressed by it as every Jew was. Not only was it beautiful to the eyes of man, but it was also in their minds, the temple of the living God, the creator of heaven and earth. They had the true God captive almost in their nation, in their temple. So they had the true God, his true worship, and they had the greatest temple on earth dedicated to his worship. And so the disciples are all excited about it. And so they say, Lord, look at these stones and look at these buildings. Jesus said in verse 2, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. These stones that you're looking at, disciples, I'm going to tear into pieces and pull them apart so there's not two still connected. Now that is thorough demolition. That is very thorough demolition. You say, how did it happen? How did they get the stones actually apart? You can read about it. It's described in graphic detail by a man that God raised up. God raises up all men. And especially when a man is raised up that tells us things that confirms the word of God, when we have the prophecy, and then we read its fulfillment, the two come together, the prophecy drives the fulfillment, not the fulfillment driving our interpretation. We know exactly what it says. Every stone's going to be pulled apart. The temple was set on fire. All the gold melted and it ran down. It found every crevice between every stone where there was any opening. The gold ran into those crevices. And soldiers who never have been paid much in any war or any military pried every stone apart to get every bit of gold they could. And some of that gold ran down into the foundations. And guess what they did with those? They dug up the foundations of that temple. That incredibly beautiful, huge building, which would have stood on a massive rock and foundation, was dug up. Terentius Rufus, commander of the 10th Legion, plowed that field when he was done. They did exactly what Jesus Christ said. There shall not be left here one stone. Can you believe that somebody would take that prophecy and apply it to some future temple? You have got to be kidding me. The men that corrupt the word of God. It was that temple that they were looking at. And Jesus said, I'm going to tear these stones apart. There's not going to be two of them left together. Listen, I want to see, I want to see the Israelites try to build a third temple. The Bible only knows about two. The former and the latter. There's only two temples in the Bible given to the Jews. The third temple is what we are, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God made up of Gentiles. I want to see them take on the Muslims that have the Dome of the Rock mosque on top of Mount Moriah, the site of that temple. It is one mile in circumference. That is not a small building. Just do your calculations with pi and figure out how far it is through that building. Go ahead. I'll give you a second. It's a big building. You had your second. Did you forget pie? The only pie I care about these days is cherry, apple, or some other kind. (laughs) I hope there's one over there. There's 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 a huge Muslim mosque sitting right on Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's awesome. I love it. It's beautiful. It's more beautiful than anything a Muslim, than a Jew could build there. I hope you understand that. Don't you let somebody come on the radio and tell you to write a check and mail it to Israel because you're helping the people of God. If you want to help the people of God, then find some saint that believes in the Lord Jesus Christ and help him. 
They went out of the temple, went out of the city of Jerusalem, came over to the Mount of Olives and sat on it. And guess what they could look at and see it in splendor? The temple, just a few hundred yards away against the city wall of Jerusalem. This is in verse 3. He sat upon the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us. We have four questions in Matthew. There's two or three in Mark 13 and Luke 21. Tell us, when shall these things be, Lord? When are you going to do this? When's this going to happen? Number one, they want to know the time. Number two, what shall be the sign of thy coming? Number three, and of the end of the world. When shall these things be? Tell us when they're going to happen. Tell us what will be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. Now, and I don't, I don't want to take long on this, but let's think about the disciples. What they mean by his coming. The disciples had never read 1 Corinthians 15, nor did they understand it. They hadn't read 1 Thessalonians 4, and they didn't understand it. They hadn't read the book of Revelation, and they didn't understand it. They did not know about the second coming of Jesus Christ like you do. They knew that there was an end of the world used by Jesus, and they knew that he had said he was coming while some of them were still alive. Matthew 16, 28, Mark 9, 1, Luke Chapter 9, verses 26 and 27, Jesus had said, There be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. So they had heard about a coming, but it wasn't the second coming that you immediately leap to. It's a coming that He had already told them about. Listen, these men were so ignorant, especially at this stage. They hadn't been given the Holy Spirit yet to understand the Scriptures or the things Jesus had taught them. They didn't even want to let Jesus go be crucified. Now that is gross darkness about the Word of God. Peter is still pulling a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane to keep Jesus from dying. These are the men that in Acts chapter 1 said, Lord, will at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? When he said, wait in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. Can you believe that ignorance? He had already told them what he was going to do with power. He was going to give them the Holy Comforter, the Spirit of the living God, to empower them for signs and wonders. But they were confused. We do not let the the questions of ignorant men drive our interpretation of Matthew 24. We let the answers of the wisest man drive our interpretation. We don't look at the words, the end of the world, and think that these disciples had read the New Testament that we've read and understand the end of the world the same way we do. Because they didn't. If you want to see the end of the world in the discourse of Jesus Christ, then read Matthew 25. But you're not going to get it in Matthew 24. If you want to see the end of the world the way you understand it, it's in Matthew 25 when he has all nations gathered before him and he's dealing with an entirely different entity than the nation of the Jews. We have these questions. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. First warning is, there's going to be a lot of liars coming along to deceive you and tell you that they are the Messiah or that there is a Messiah out there in the desert or there's a Messiah hiding in the city of Jerusalem that will save you from this. Take heed. Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And if you go to the book of Acts, Acts 5, Acts 8, Acts 21, we have three accounts given of men that tried to mislead and did mislead. 401 case, 4,000 another, took them out in the desert. Romans went out and killed them all. What did, what did Simon think that he was in the city of Samaria? I want three words. Uh, a great one. 
And the people all believed that he was a great one. They thought he might have been the Messiah. There were false messiahs that were even told, were even told about them in the book of Acts. Keep going. Verse 6. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. Don't let wars and rumors of wars bother you. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. You've got to have, there's got to be wars and rumors of wars, but that's not the war. The war is described in Daniel chapter 9 in the 70 weeks prophecy that there would be a war that would overwhelm the city of Jerusalem and its temple and unto the consummation and desolation of that city. That's in Daniel 9. We've already been there. I said I have to trust you to remember the things you've been taught. If you come in here and walk out of here and worry about your job and worry about your family and worry about your belly, the, the, Satan will snatch away the Word of God and you will not be able to build a foundation of understanding. Right. Take heed, therefore, how ye hear. The Word of God is here, here a little, there a little. Precept upon precept, line upon line. That is how understanding occurs. You must listen attentively and remember what you are taught. And I try to give you a vehicle to go back and remember with the outlines. So in verse 6, when he says, Don't be troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. He's not talking about the end of the world. Unless you want to understand the end of the world to be the end of the Jewish world, then I'll say fine. You're right on track. He's talking about the end of that temple that he's pointing at, looking at, and talking about. And the end of the city that holds that temple. That's the end that's under consideration. It's not your idea of the end of the world. They'd never heard of that in the way that you think of it. They'd never read those chapters. And Jesus is telling us, the, look at the, the eighth verse, all these are the beginning of sorrows. These few things that I've just told you are the very beginning of the sorrows leading to the great tribulation. These are things you're not going to enjoy reading in the newspaper, but this is not the great tribulation. It's just the beginning. Don't be alarmed. Don't be troubled. Don't be thinking that you need to do something immediately, because these are just precursory warning signals. Nation shall rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginnings of sorrows. It's amazing. For those of you that have ever watched Jack and Rex Ella Van Empe, you know, every single day in the paper, and when I say every single day, I mean just what I said. Every single day, Rex Ella finds a paper somewhere, brings it and puts it in front of Jack, and says, Jack, look it, there was an earthquake in Paraguay. And Jack says, and he quotes Matthew 24, the Lord's going to come any time. They've been doing this for 20 years. Have you ever watched Jack and Rex Ella? You need to watch it. It's spiritual entertainment. As little Rexella fawns all over her husband, as he quotes Matthew 24, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and pestilences, every single episode from current events in the newspaper. This was addressed to men that were standing then, and it was going to happen to men that were still alive then, in that generation. And those things did happen. Can't we open the book of Acts, which is our history book? It doesn't run all the way to 70 AD, but it runs all the way to 60s. Can we open the book of Acts and in Acts chapter 11 and verse 28 learn about a prophet named Agabus that came and showed that there was going to be in the days of Claudius Caesar a dearth throughout all the earth. What is a dearth? A famine. We have the fulfillment even in the book of Acts. These things happened. Jesus said all these things shall come to pass on this generation. That is what drives our understanding here. They're looking at the temple. 
They're looking at the city. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives, admiring the beautiful building. The disciples want to know, when are you going to destroy all this? He tells them. So we know, and we know when that temple was destroyed. It was destroyed in 70 AD. Then he gets to the end and he says, all these things shall come to pass on this generation. And he had put it in other words to them just earlier, there be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death. It's in the lifetime of the men then living that he would do these things. And it happened. We can read Acts and see these things happening. There was a great famine. All these things, the beginning of sorrows. Verse 9, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Did that happen in the book of Acts? Absolutely. Everywhere we read the book of Acts was the persecution raised by the Jews using other national entities to persecute the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. Did they kill Stephen or not? Did they provoke, did they provoke men to, to captive, capture our brother Paul? Did James get his head cut off? On and on we read about the persecution in the book of Acts. They shall deliver you up to be afflicted, and they shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. He continues on this course of not letting there be another Jesus to confuse them about the events that were coming. We started with that warning, we had that warning in the middle, and we're going to have that warning shortly again. False Christ saying that they were come to deliver the nation of Israel. That's why he said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. This place is going down. There is no deliverer for it. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. You know, we, we look at that verse. Does that verse fit the year 2005? Yes. But did Jesus address it? To us in 2005. Only indirectly by principle that when iniquity abounds, the love of many waxes cold. Because it's a prophecy about that generation. Did that, did, does our Bible tell us that things like that happened? Do we have Revelation chapter 2 that tells us that the Ephesian saints had lost their first love? The Bible tells us that. Because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. That's another reason why you'd be tempted to listen to false prophets. That's another reason why you would be tempted not to endure to the end. And so we have verse 13. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. What end is under consideration? The end of Jerusalem. The end of the temple. These these men weren't going to live 2,000, 3,000, 8,000 years until the second coming of Jesus Christ. But if they endured, they could be saved in the end. What salvation is under consideration? The salvation that's mentioned in verse 22, where Jesus said, I'll shorten these days for the elect's sake so they can be saved. That's his part. What's their part? Enduring until that end. Because it was going to be horrible. They were going to have to uproot their lives and move away. And the Roman army would be consuming everything that was available in that whole part of Judea. How would you survive with your family if all of a sudden you had to move on short notice and there were no jobs and the distribution system had broken down and there was no one planting or reaping? How long would you survive? 
that kind of a trial had better be shortened or even the elect were not going to survive hiding in the mountains outside the city of Jerusalem across the Jordan River. You should be able to understand that. There would be not, everything would be broken down because most of Israel was inside the city walls so that farming had broken down. It was not occurring any longer and the Romans were consuming everything that was left. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. What does it mean to endure in this passage? It means that though iniquity is abounding, you keep living a holy life and being watchful. It means that though false prophets arise and try to lead you astray and tell you that a deliverer is coming, you ignore them. It means that though you hear in the paper of wars and rumors of wars, you don't get moved by those things. You stay listening to my word and endure to the end and you shall be saved. Do you know how many times that verse is quoted about the final perseverance of the saints? He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. And and it's taught this way, totally out of the context of Matthew 24. If you don't persevere in a life of holiness and righteousness, then you were never saved in the first place. And you won't be saved at the great bar of judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's quoted that way by men that you would otherwise respect and think they've got to know something about the Bible. But they don't. When it comes to this chapter, there isn't anything about the perseverance of the saints in Matthew 24, 13. Not even indirectly. It is a warning. It is going to be very hard. I'm telling you about the beginning of sorrows, but the great tribulation is going to be terrible, and you're going to have to be tough. I will do my part in shortening those days for the elect to be saved. But if you are not careful, you will be deceived, or you will not endure. You will not last. What's going to, what I'm going to bring on this nation. It is such a practical warning given by the Lord Jesus Christ to his followers. Verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. He is still working up to his end. And the end is the end of the city of Jerusalem, the end of the nation of Israel, the end of the temple that they had been admiring. The gospel, and we're going to get, we're going to deal with this verse tonight. Because the Bible tells us so plainly, I think I'm up to around 20. About 15 of them are Paul's. Verses in the New Testament that tell us, either directly or indirectly, that the gospel of the kingdom had been preached in all the world to all nations by 70 A.D. Before 70 A.D. Because Paul said it was true in his day, and he wrote his final epistles before 70 A.D. We will see those. Colossians chapter 1 is the best place to go. Verses 6 and verses 23. It says the gospel has been preached to every creature under heaven. Paul wrote that to the Colossians in 60-something A.D. Jesus Christ equipped 12 men to go out. Yes, there was a replacement for Judas. Jesus Christ equipped 12 men. Paul was an additional one to the 12. And they went out and they preached the gospel. And he gave them the ability and the power and the signs and wonders to go out and preach. They had the gift of prophecy, the gift of knowledge, a word of wisdom, and everything else in between. They could speak in any language without going to language school. They had it all. They could raise the dead and heal the sick. They could cast out devils. And they could travel without an airplane. And they preached the gospel of the kingdom. They presented Jesus Christ as king. Do you want to know what it sounds like to hear a sermon about Jesus Christ being king? Go read Acts chapter 2, when Peter, full of the Holy Ghost, stood up in the city of Jerusalem and looked those wicked men in their eyes and said, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. That is the gospel of the kingdom. They said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. 
for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the gospel of the kingdom. And it was preached throughout the world before 70 AD, but that's for tonight. These are the things leading up to it. This still isn't the final sign. These are all, this is the beginning of sorrows, and the sorrows are getting greater and greater. Iniquity is abounding, the love of many is waxing cold. These are the things that have to be done before Jesus could come back in 70 AD and destroy Jerusalem. He was going to get this gospel, this gospel, the gospel of Matthew. Let me make it very plain for you. The gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke and the other prophecies of this New Testament was going to be preached in all the world, either by the verbal mouth of the apostles of Jesus Christ or by the written New Testament scriptures. They would all know these prophecies and then the end would come. Matthew 24, 14. They would all know something that Jesus Christ had spoken of repeatedly. That John the Baptist had spoken of. That Paul had spoken of. Peter spoke of. James spoke of. Repeatedly they would know it because they would have heard the gospel of the kingdom. Then the end would come. They would be able to read their newspapers and know that Jesus Christ was sitting at the right hand of heaven. Because they would see the sign of the Son of Man in heaven because he would be crushing his enemies. That is the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. A war demolishing his enemies. Amen. We're, gonna, we're, we're racing to that. If you don't think I'm racing, the brakes aren't on. Verse 15. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. Now this is the sign that the end is coming. So far it's been that the end is not yet. Mark says it's not by and by. It's not real soon. you still got some time. We just got out of the way some things that Jesus was going to get done before he destroyed Jerusalem. Verse 15, when ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation. Something is going to be very visible. A visible sign they were going to be able to see. Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Because there is great understanding to be gathered from Daniel. If you can't, verse by verse, take care of Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12, you don't have a right in Matthew 24, because Jesus told you that. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Understanding is started in Daniel. It's not started in Matthew 24. Because in Daniel, we have much more laid out and time frames put on it, and so that we know what's happening. And listen, this abomination of desolation is very easy to understand. It is not an idol in a rebuilt temple of the Jews in Jerusalem. That is a joke. That is a Schofield imagination. There isn't a word in the Word of God about anything like that. That abomination of desolation, if you read Matthew 24, it's called the abomination of desolation. If you read Mark 13, it's called the abomination of desolation. If you read Luke 21, which is the same account... It says, when you see Jerusalem encompassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Oh, so the word desolation doesn't mean an idol. It means the city's going to be wiped flat to the ground. Yes. And the abomination of desolation. Do you know how Daniel words it? The abomination that maketh desolate. And that is Daniel chapter 12 and verse 11. And I'll tell you, I have read hundreds of books. I have stood at Bob Jones University over the last 21 years and covered hundreds of feet of shelves of books lined up on prophecy. There's two men that I have ever found that can understand Daniel 11 and 12. Only two. Only two. 
out of hundreds and hundreds. And if you can't understand Daniel 12, you don't belong in Matthew 24. Because Jesus said, whoso readeth, let him understand. Because it's in Daniel 12 that we are told about the abomination that maketh desolate. And we're given a period of time that they were going to have to endure before the daily sacrifice was taken away and the city was wiped out. Remember, blessed are those that can wait till the 1,335th day. The abomination of desolation was the Roman armies. What is an abomination of desolation? The abomination is the fact that in God's holy land, in God's holy city, there were pagan idolaters of the Roman nation that came and planted their army. When an army comes to a place, they set up camp. And that's what it means to have the abomination of desolation set up. You're going to see it. Because an army came in and camped. That's what Luke tells us it was. And that's what Daniel tells us it was. There's going to be a war. There's going to be a terrible war. And those Romans came and set up their camp. And they were pagan idolaters, and they had their altars, and they had their ensigns to their pagan gods, and they were going to lay Judea waste or desolate. So it's the abomination of pagan, foreign, idolatrous armies laying waste to the land of Judea. That's the abomination of desolation. It's the abomination that maketh desolate. It's the foreign armies that were going to come that were pagan idolaters and wipe out the city of Jerusalem. That's Daniel 12, Daniel 9. And Luke 21, shedding light on Matthew 24, 15. And this was something they would be able to see. When you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Okay, my dear brethren, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. You want to know when it's going to happen? You want to know what the signs are going to be? Let me tell you the first big sign. When you see the armies surrounding the city, it is time to get out. It is time to get out, and he tells them exactly what to do. Let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Don't you come into the city, and if you're in the city, get out of it. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Look at all these practical warnings. Women, pray that you won't be pregnant. Oh, this is the second coming. Why would a woman worry that she was pregnant when the Lord comes the second time? Schofield, can you hear me? Why were women to be worried about being pregnant? Or nursing. Why were they told exactly where to go? To the mountains. Why were they told that they, they should hope that it's not the winter? Who would want to spend the winter hold up without food or clothing? Because you didn't have a house. This is a very practical warning of what happened to them. When was the siege laid? In April. I want to show you how merciful our God is. To his elect. Not to those in the city. When was the siege laid? In April, at Passover, when all of the Israel had come into the city walls of Jerusalem, and Titus came suddenly and surrounded the city, and they were trapped in there. What time is Passover? We all know it. What month? Pick a month. April. That's a good time to have a siege, wouldn't it? How about a siege that lasts five and a half months? Is that a good time to start in April and end about October sometime? September? August, September, October? Is that a good time? Could you survive that? Could you do better in the summer than the winter? Look at the Lord. Pray that it's not in the winter. And he, it didn't happen in the winter. 
and pray that it not be in the Sabbath day. Why not the Sabbath day? Because the Jews would only let you travel a few hundred yards on the Sabbath day. You wouldn't be able to get far enough away. Amen. You say, but if the city is surrounded by armies, how can you get out and go hide in the mountains? We've already answered that. Do you remember? Or do I have to go back and go over that again? Did the Romans send Cestius Gallus and camp for five days around that city and then withdraw for no reason at all? Absolutely. That is the only way that you could have a city surrounded by armies and get out. Because the Lord sent that. Do you know what? We have the time frame, 1,290 days from when that siege was laid until the daily sacrifice was taken away because there were no more lambs in the city of Jerusalem. And then 45 more days, Titus took the whole city. And lift up your heads, your redemption draweth nigh. All those poor... This is what Luke says. All those poor people out there in the caves and the mountains across the river Jordan from the destruction of Jerusalem were able to see that Titus had taken the city faster than they thought he would, faster than he thought he would. And it says, lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. That is exactly what those words mean. Because Jesus in Matthew and Mark didn't use the word redemption. He used the word saved. Those days should be shortened. And if they weren't shortened, the elect wouldn't be redeemed. He said, all these things shall come to pass on this generation. Was there a redemption? Was there a salvation? You bet there was. There was a shortening of those terrible days of tribulation so that those believing saints in the mountains would be saved from starvation, from false prophets, and from the Jews trying to kill them. These practical warnings. What a glorious Savior. What a wonderful friend to tell them exactly what to do. Remember when Jesus was carrying his cross? Well, they had just given it to Simeon. And he's going up the hill of Calvary and he turns to those women that are weeping for him and he says, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Because the days are coming that are going to be terrible. If they're, if the Romans and Jews are combining to do things like they are now in a time of prosperity and peace, what are they going to do in a dry tree? It was so practical. He cared about every one of his saints. Verse 21, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Never on earth, before or after, would there be one group of people bottled up in one place that would be subjected to the torment and affliction and tribulation that those Jews were. Never. You know, I tried to tell, a couple of weeks ago, there was the, the, the anniversary of dropping an atomic bomb on one of the cities in Japan. Hiroshima, I believe. You know, the number of death ranges from, the number of dead in that dropping of that bomb ranges from 40,000 to 140,000. But I want to tell you something about that city. That was not tribulation. Those people never even knew what hit them. All they knew is they were going to work and we dropped one little speck out of the sky and a thousand meters above ground zero, it blew up. They saw a blinding light and it was all over. You say, well, a few of them died in, in cancer hop hospitals over the next few years. Yeah, a few did. But that was nothing in comparison to this. This siege lasted five and a half months and there was no food because the factions within Jerusalem burned up each other's stores of grain. How's that for the Lord shortening the days? They starved to death. Then they were killing each other. And the Lord caused them to voluntarily leave the towers. And Titus took it and said, if they had not voluntarily left them, there are no Roman engines of war that could have moved them from those towers. 
the Lord had shortened the days so the elect could be saved. But it was a tribulation, the likes of which the world hadn't seen and wouldn't see. And Jesus was going to bring it. And it makes totally good sense if you'll think. What was this generation guilty of? They crucified the Lord of glory. Shouldn't they be guilty and worthy of the greatest punishment ever poured out? No matter what you think about your sins, no matter how many men have told you your sins nailed Jesus to the cross, you did not nail Jesus to the cross. Those men had Jesus Christ right in their face performing miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. For three and a half years, they had John the Baptist telling them this was the Messiah. They had all the Old Testament scriptures read every Sabbath day in their synagogues and in the temple telling them it was the Messiah. Jesus plainly says that the judgment he would bring on those men was because they crucified him. How about the book of Hebrews? You know, the book of Hebrews, by understanding Matthew 24, Hebrews, clunk. The whole book is easy. Clunk. Beautiful. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye, what do you suppose? What, Jesus is asking a question. Suppose ye, what do you suppose? If somebody that disobeyed Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses, of how much sorer punishment suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God? Does that make sense to you? Amen. Makes totally good sense to me. If God had no mercy for violators of the old covenant, but they were stoned to death, like the man that picked up sticks on the Sabbath day, Numbers chapter 15, I believe, then what about someone that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ? On a a legal basis, on a legal basis, were your sins in the Lord Jesus Christ when he died? Yes. But on a practical basis, were you there seeing all of his miracles and putting him to death? No. That generation was given too much, and the Lord required it of them, and he required... Do you know what Luke says about this? Luke says, these be the days of vengeance. These, when the armies surround Jerusalem, be the days of vengeance, so that all things that are written can be fulfilled. Every threat that God ever poured out against that nation was brought to bear in 70 A.D. These be the days of vengeance, that all things that are written might be fulfilled. That's what Jesus said. Do you know what I do? I believe it. On that nation, we have a day of vengeance coming. That is worse and greater than this day of vengeance. But it's not taught right here. It's taught in other places. Jesus was addressing the Jews. If you want to learn what Jesus has to say to you, then read Paul. Don't read Jesus. If Hear me again. If you want to know what Jesus Christ has to say to you as a Gentile, then read Paul. And do you know what? When we read Paul, there's none of this. Except when he gets to a book entitled Hebrews. Lord, thank you. Then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time. No, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And he did shorten them. They did survive. And he had told them they would survive in Daniel 12. He said, blessed are they that wait and come to the 1,335th day. Verse 23, here's the third warning about false teachers. Then if any man shall say unto you, while this siege is going on, if any man shall say to you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, 
believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before, told them three times, there's going to be false prophets saying, Lo, there is Christ. We have a deliverer. We're going to be saved from the Romans. Well, here is Christ. He's in the desert. He's in a secret chamber. We're going to be saved. And the stories of the numbers of them that Josephus writes about is overwhelming. They were constantly believing that God would deliver them. So if any man stood up and said, I'm the Messiah, I'm going to save you from the Romans, they believed him. Because they knew they had the religion of God. They knew they had the temple of God. They knew they had the altar of God, the priests of God. So they were looking for a Messiah. They, they just hadn't heard these words, that th- though they were spoken very plainly to them. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. It's your house. You know, in the beginning of his ministry, he said, Ye have made my father's house a den of thieves. At the end of his ministry, he said, It's your house. Because God had forsaken that place, and it was a God-forsaken city, temple, and God wiped it out. But any time a man stood up and said, Jesus is going to deliver us. The Messiah is here. They knew the prophecy said he ought to be. From Daniel chapter 9, the 490 years, the 70 weeks. Jesus said, I've told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, don't go. Don't leave your hiding places. Don't leave the city. Don't go anywhere in the desert looking for Jesus. Go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers. He's at 172 Main Street, hiding in the basement. Don't go to any place that says, The Lord Jesus Christ or the Messiah is in a place like that. Don't go. Believe it not. For here is what I will look like. As the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. This is His coming in judgment, in bringing to pass the greatest tribulation that would ever come on the Jewish people. Don't believe them when they tell you He's in the desert. Don't believe them when they tell you he's hiding in a room in some house in town, in a secret chamber. Because my coming is not going to be like that at all. It is going to be obvious. It doesn't say he comes as a bolt of light. It doesn't say he is a bolt of light. It just says, as lightning goeth from the east to the west. If somebody said, Jesus is hiding over here. He said, no. Don't worry about anything like that. Because as lightning that covers the whole sky, and you can't miss it, that is what it will be like when I come. In judgment on this city, because that's the coming that's under consideration. That is, Those are the false prophets that he's trying to save them from. And then he tells you that's what he means by saying, For, wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Wherever there is a remnant of the nation of Israel... I will be there devouring them in the fo- like eagles devour a dead carcass. Because the nation was a dead carcass. God had withdrawn himself from that nation. Your house is left to you desolate. Verses 27 and 28 go hand in hand. There, 28 is explaining verse 27. 27 is explaining why saying Jesus is there or Jesus is over there is not true. You won't have to wonder where I am. Because I'm going to be like a bolt of lightning. It'll be visible and obvious and clear. It'll be covering the whole sky. You will not be having to look in some narrow way over here. I'm going to be visible. Where, Lord? In, in, in one of the other accounts, the disciples said, Where, Lord? 
Even though he had said, it's going to be like lightning, they said, where, Lord? And he said, wheresoever the eagles are. Now, who are the eagles? It's the army that God has sent to consume and destroy the nation. Didn't he tell us that the army would come with an overwhelming flood, Daniel chapter 9, until the consummation of the whole nation? Now, if you even want to get literal on that verse, I'll let you a little tiny bit. Because what do you think the Romans had on their ensigns? Eagles. The eagles of the Roman Empire. But eagles are also, throughout the Bible, a creature that eats dead animals. And there was a dead animal in the middle of Judea, and it was the city of Jerusalem. And the two verses go hand in hand. He's, he's saying, disciples, don't be distracted when somebody says that I'm over there, I'm over there. I'm gonna, it's going to be so obvious, because wherever you see any of Israel left, the armies will be there devouring them. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. And so we're to verse 28. Verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. Now what's the tribulation? The siege of Jerusalem for five and a half months in which 1.1 million people died and 97,000 were taken captive and they died in the most horrible way, even noble women eating their children. That is the great tribulation. It's what is described in verse 21. The tribulation of a surrounding army keeping in the people. Remember, they're going to dig a trench all the way around the city of Jerusalem. Luke 19. They're going to keep you in on every side so that you cannot get out. You cannot get food. You cannot escape. That is the great tribulation. So that, then we have verse 29. Now, do you know what verse 29 tells us with that first word, that adverb immediately? How long is there in the word immediately? No time at all. It's the next event. It's right there. It's immediate. Do you know what it tells you about verses 27 and 28? They were part of the great tribulation. Immediately after the tribulation of those days. 27 and 28 are part of that tribulation that began its description in verse 21. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. This is, this is where we can bless the God of heaven. It is all plain to him that understandeth. The Bible says, Proverbs chapter 8, verse 9. It's all plain to him that understandeth. This, here, here's how a Schofieldite approaches Matthew 24. What are you talking about, 70 A.D.? The sun never went dark. The moon never stopped shining. The stars didn't fall from heaven. You're wrong, buddy. Thank you for giving us your learned opinion after sitting in seminary for ten years to figure that one out. Yes, where's an Elijah today that will stand up and say, let God drop fire from heaven and burn up these idol worshipers? They're worshiping the idol of Jewish fables. They have to get rid of Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. Because it doesn't fit with their ideas of Jewish preeminency coming in the futures, coming in the future. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened. Now we have two limits on that event. Two limits. Number one, Jesus said immediately, immediately after the tribulation, the siege of Jerusalem is the tribulation when armies surround it and starve the people and they all die. That's the tribulation. Immediately after that, this was going to take place. Second time limit. Verse 34. This generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled, including verse 29. We have two reasons right in the context that tell us it's an event right then. Immediate. 
Immediate never has a 2,000 year gap. It doesn't even have a two year gap. It doesn't even have a two minute gap. It's what, it's what is concluded from Jerusalem being destroyed and Titus coming into the center, raising his standards and offering sacrifices to his gods. Jerusalem and the Jews and the old covenant are over. There's no altar. There's no temple. There's no priesthood. There's no holy of holies. There is nothing. It is over. And do you know how the Bible describes an event when the religious world is turned upside down and totally changed? The sun stops shining, the moon stops shining, and the stars fall from heaven. Now, how do we know that positive explanation for those words? Because we read the Bible and compare spiritual things with spiritual. We go back to Isaiah 13 and see that that is the very terminology used when the Medes and the Persians overthrew Babylon. Let's go over that again. This is how we study the Bible, brethren. And I wish that every single one of my men had minds like steel traps. Number one, immediately doesn't even have a gap of two minutes, let alone 2,000 years. It's something that happened right then when the siege ended and Jerusalem was over. Second, this generation shall not pass till all these things, including verse 29, be fulfilled. Third, since we have a time limit of that verse to 70 A.D., what is the positive explanation we can give of it? We read the rest of the Bible. You say, you mentioned Isaiah 13. How about a New Testament passage? Okay, I'll give you one. Who do you want to line up with? The charismatics that follow Jimmy Swaggart's interpretation of Acts chapter 2 or Peter's interpretation of Acts chapter 2? Because in Acts chapter 2 it says the sun will stop shining, the moon will stop shining, talking about the same events, the same, the same connected events of God getting rid of the old covenant, bringing in the new, the blood and fire and vapor of smoke. Was there ever blood? Did the moon ever turn into blood? Did the moon stop shining? Was there, was there fire and vapor of smoke? No. There was a bunch of disciples that were fishermen from Galilee, speaking fluently in all the different languages of the Roman world, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ in the city streets of Jerusalem. Because, God, we are in the time of reformation, of God getting rid of the old covenant, bringing in the new, and it's called the sun stops shining. Because all of a sudden, there is a tremendous change in the religious world. Instead of wisdom being found in the temple, instead of wisdom being found with Pharisees, it's being found with fishermen preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter said, this is that. Do you know what I'm saying? This is that. If you fight me on this passage, you've got to fight Peter in Acts 2 because it's the very same language. Amen. This is that. It is a spiritual fulfillment of an earth-shattering event. The prophets used earth-shattering language. We've been over all that before. Verse 29 is easy. We're tied in by the word immediately. We're tied in by the verse 34 that says, This generation shall not pass. What does that mean? It means there will be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death. Till you see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Then we're given a positive explanation for this kind of language in the Old Testament and the New. Prophets used this kind of language when they were describing an earth-shattering event. We shouldn't be looking for the sun to stop shining literally. And that is turning the whole prophecy upside down. It's not studying the Bible to go in and find one verse and then force the whole prophecy to take on a different meaning. 
We've built our case all the way from the book of Deuteronomy to the book of James, chapter 5, and we've looked at every prophecy in between, and here we are. No problem. Immediately. Immediately, as soon as the Jewish city was wiped out, there was a total change of religious things in the world. The sun stopped shining. No longer was there light coming out of Jerusalem. Darkness had come over the old covenant. Light had sprung up in the new covenant. Jesus Christ was in heaven. He had all authority and religious things had totally changed. No longer would anyone have to write the book of Hebrews. There was no Jerusalem. There were no priests. There was no old covenant. It was gone. Verse 30. Does verse 29 in your Bible end with a period? Does it have a paragraph mark? Does it have a hundred verses between verse 29 and 30? Or does it just continue on with a description of what happens immediately after the tribulation? Of those days. What days? Those days. Not coming days. Those days. The days that were going to trouble these saints. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. The sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. In this part of the verse, it doesn't say that then shall appear the Son of Man in heaven. It says then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. How do you know that the Son of Man was in heaven by something that immediately transpired upon the heels of the Great Tribulation. Because there was a prince that had just destroyed his enemy and wiped out the Old Covenant and brought in the New Covenant and left it, just as he had said he would. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. That was the sign, because the religious things had been totally turned upside down. They rejected him, but he rejected them. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Some men look at this verse and let this verse drive the whole prophecy, drive the whole Bible. What did they see? It says they're going to see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What did they see? Who were the tribes of the earth? The tribes of the earth are the Jewish tribes. That's the way they're described in the Bible. What were they mourning for? They were mourning for because they had made one great drastic mistake and had crucified the Lord of glory and their nation, their temple, their city, their everything was over. What did they see? They saw the same thing that Jesus had said in Matthew 16. There be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. How did they know Jesus had come in His kingdom? He had put on His sword... And he had rode prosperously forth and destroyed his enemies. And his arrows were sharp in the heart of his enemies. And he'd wiped them out. This is a figurative verse, just like it is throughout the rest of the Bible. They didn't literally see Jesus descending bodily from heaven like we're going to do at the second coming. They, they saw him coming in judgment on that nation. Just like when we read Isaiah 19, when it says that God rode upon the clouds and came into Egypt in the presence of the Lord in the land of Egypt, caused the idols of Egypt to tremble. He didn't go there bodily. He went there in a figurative judgment. How do I know that? Because it says immediately after the tribulation of those days, that's 1,935 years ago, and it says that this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled, and it says there be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. They will see that Jesus Christ had kingdom power and authority by what He did to His enemies. Then you compare Scripture with Scripture, and that's the very language that the Bible uses of God coming in judgment. I can't overthrow those four things. 
I can't say the word immediately doesn't mean immediately. I can't say the word generation doesn't mean generation. I can't say that when Jesus said, there be some of you sinning here that shall not taste of death, that it means an event that happened six days later. I can't do that. I have to stick with what the Bible said. And then I look and once I do that, once I make the decision, you start reading throughout the rest of the Bible. What does it mean to see God coming in the clouds of heaven? Is it a literal bodily descent or is it a picture of God coming in judgment? Judgment throughout the Bible. How many of you read Psalm 18 when David said, I prayed for the Lord to deliver me and the earth shook and he rode upon the wings of the wind and he rode upon a cherub hailstones of fire. Come on. How do you read Psalm 18? Please tell me you're not going to go be a script writer for Jack and Rexella if you're going to take Psalm 18 and make it literal. It's a powerful picture. Do you know what Jesus told Caiaphas? You bet I'm the Son of God. And hereafter, go read, go read every occurrence of the word hereafter in the Bible. Hereafter, you, you and your buddies that are standing around me right now, shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Very same prophecy, very same time, 70 A.D. It was not a literal, physical descent of the Lord Jesus Christ in a cloud. It was the destruction of His enemies. And he shall send his angels, this is immediately after the great, immediately after the tribulation of those days, sun darkened, moon doesn't give her light, stars fall from heaven, powers of heaven are shaken. This is an earth-shaking event in the religious world. Then it's going to be visible that Jesus Christ is truly king and he's destroying his enemies and he's brought in the new covenant and he shall send his angels the great sound of a trumpet and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now, what is that? Let's do the very same thing. Immediately tells us it happened 1,935 years ago. This generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Tell us it happened before 70 A.D. Now, we read two parables this morning. When Jesus Christ came and miserably destroyed those murderers, what did he immediately do? He said, my vineyard's going to get overgrown unless I give it to some other husbandmen. And he gave it to the Gentiles. What did he do in Matthew chapter 22 when he came and burned up their city? He said, servants, I still have a marriage supper. Would you get out in the streets and get some new people in here? Gentiles. Verse 31 is the Gentile conversion brought on by the destruction of Jerusalem as God turned to the four winds of heaven and brought in you and me from the other side of the earth and our ancestors in the faith that believe the gospel. He says, but it, but it says angels. I, I know it says angels. Do you think that in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, that the Apostle John sent a message, wrote, wrote a letter? Do you think he wrote a letter to an angel? Or did he write a letter to a minister? To the angel of the church at Ephesus. Do angels read letters? How much postage do you put on the letter? Because the question is, where in the Bible? The question, it's a good question. Pastor, if I trust you with the word immediately, and if I trust you with verse 34, if I trust you by tying in the parables, can you show me in the Bible by comparing Scripture with Scripture like you've said we need to do, where ministers are called angels? That's why I'm mentioning Revelation 1, 2, and 3, to the angel of the church at Ephesus. Yes, they are called angels, because an angel is a messenger. Some of God's messengers are in heaven, and they're flaming spirits, and some of his messengers are on earth, and they're pastors. Second thing, it says that the angels are going to gather together the elect with the great son of a trumpet and pastor. 
That just sounds like 1 Thessalonians 4. And you know what I'm going to say to you? I know it sounds like 1 Thessalonians 4, but I've got the word immediately limiting it to 1935 years ago. And I've got the word, this generation shall not pass away till all these things be fulfilled. Are there any Bible verses, Pastor, that say that preaching the gospel is the blasting of a trumpet? Oh, indeed there are. All the way from the book of Numbers, all the way through the Old Testament. How about Isaiah 58 and verse 1? It sounds like this. Isaiah 58, 1. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet, and show my people their transgression, the house of Jacob their sins. Yes, it is. Now remember how we did this. We have laid a case for three weeks. And then we come to this passage and we're limited by the word immediately. We're limited by the word by verse 34. We're limited by every description of it. It took place in 70 A.D., whether it's Daniel writing it, whether it's Malachi writing it, or John the Baptist speaking it. John the Baptist said, Jesus is going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. In this generation, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Ghost. When did, John, when did Jesus baptize anyone with the Holy Ghost? 30 A.D. Then he's going to baptize you with fire. And so we're limited. Then we look in the Bible. And do we ever find verses about blasting a trumpet and angels being ministers? Because this is prophetic language and it's glory and it's beautiful. It's beautiful language. Go read Daniel chapter 12, the first seven verses. If you think this is hard, go try Daniel chapter 12 where it says that many that sleep in the dust of the earth shall arise and there's no resurrection there at all. Because Daniel chapter 12 and verse 7 says, all the things that I just wrote are going to happen before the power of the holy people are scattered. The resurrection there is when the gospel is preached and men are brought by the preaching of the gospel out of the darkness and death of their false religions. If you read Daniel 12, which Jesus said to do, then you'd understand his language before he even got to Matthew 24. Verse 32. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When its branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, you know that summer is nigh. When you go out to a fig tree that doesn't have any leaves on it, and you watch that branch get tender and little buds come off it, little leaves start to form, what can you know for certain? Summer is very close. That's simple. Verse 33, so likewise, in the very same way, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Two things in that verse. All these things and it. All these things must be the signs leading up to it. We've got two things that are very close. And you're going to measure the one by the things leading up to it. All these things have to be the signs of Matthew 24. And the it has to be the destruction and the things that immediately follow it. When you shall see all these things that are signs, you'll know that it, the destruction of the city and the things that immediately follow upon that destruction, are very close. When you see those signs, that's his first little lesson, putting a time limit on the prophecy. Then he says in verse 34, Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. I believe that. It was the generation that crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the generation that John preached to, the apostles preached to. It's the generation of the husbandmen that mistreated the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God destroyed them for that act in their lifetimes. It's when... Jesus said, daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and your children. That's a generation. It's when Jesus said, there be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death till this happens. That's a generation. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. 
What I have just preached to you, Jesus said, will certainly come to pass. Do not let anyone tell you otherwise. It is going to come to pass. When you see the signs start to appear, get out of that city, because I am going to destroy it. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. The specific time when I'm coming is unknown. It's going to happen within a period of time. There will be some of you standing here that shall not taste of death. But you will not know the precise time, so you better be watching and waiting. How do we know that verses 36 through 51 apply to 70 A.D.? Because of Luke. The same way that we know the abomination of desolation is surrounding armies is because of Daniel and because of Luke. doesn't use the words abomination of desolation, but says armies surrounding Jerusalem. How do we know that verses 36 through 51 apply to 70 A.D.? Because Luke takes the words in the first half of this chapter and verses 36 through 51 and puts them together in a 70 A.D. context in Luke 17, verses 20 through 37. If a man has a heart attack and he is told, if you don't change your eating habits, you're going to have another one. How long will he be seriously convicted by that warning? And this is no reflection on anyone in our congregation who's had a heart attack. This is entirely my little object lesson that I've given many times. How, how, how long? Forty days? Till he walks out the door, I hear. Forty days is a long time to remember a warning like that when your belly gets hungry about every four hours and there's lots of neat stuff at the convenience store on your way home. Forty days is a long time. Forty years. How long could you keep the warning of an event that is 40 years away fresh in your mind so that you were living very soberly and watching very carefully? That's why we have verses 36 through 51. It is, a, it is an exhortation. Watch! Be sober! Those people in Noah's day didn't think it would ever come, but the flood came and took them away. The people in Lot's day didn't think it would come. It came and took them away. Watch! You do not know, you know the general time of it coming, but you do not know the day or the hour. You do not know if it's going to be on the Sabbath day or not. You do not know if it's going to be in winter or not. You do not know the precise time of my coming to judge Jerusalem. So be careful. Watch. Pray. Live holy. Don't let, when iniquity is abounding, steal the affection of your hearts and let your love wax cold. That's the rest of the chapter. And so it's constant reminders. Watching. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? And so forth through the end of the chapter. That is Matthew 24. That is Mark 13. And if you're going to read it in Luke, you've got to read Luke 21 and Luke 17, where God helps us by giving Luke 17 to arrange it in a different way and connect verses in the first half of Matthew 24 and verses in the second half of 24 and bring them together. Why did I preach this? I want you to be saved from the errors of dispensationalism and pre-tribulationism and all the left-behind stuff that's going around. Jack and Rexella and all the rest of them. Schofield Bible. I want you to love the Lord Jesus Christ the way that Psalm 45 describes Him. And describes Him, gird on thy sword and ride prosperously. And go forth in majesty and in meekness and truth and righteousness and destroy your enemies. I want you to know the gospel of the kingdom as it was preached 1,900 years ago. It was preached with Jesus Christ sitting on a throne. It was not preached with Jesus on a crucifix, nor Jesus in a manger. It was preached with Jesus on a 
throne. And I want you to love that Lord Jesus Christ. I want to be as faithful as Stephen was to put him where he belongs. I want you to get excited about tonight. And I promise you it will be shorter because I'm just going to go through the 15 or 20 examples and show you that the gospel was preached in all the world before 70 A.D. We're going to sing about it and we're going to be thankful that God gave a kingdom to us stupid, foolish, idol-worshiping, pagan Gentiles. Amen. And he sent ministers. He got ministers to the other side of the earth to teach us the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want us to rejoice in that. That's what I got convicted about. It was Matthew twenty four fourteen. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness to all nations. And then shall the end come. Jesus wanted everyone watching that he would do what he said he would do. He is a great king. He's worthy of your full obedience and faith this day. Fall on the Lord Jesus Christ and be broken with me. Let's be broken and love him and serve him. And he's going to come for us, not against us. But those that will not be broken, he is going to come against them. And the second coming is going to be worse than this coming in 70 A.D. Because he's going to burn up this earth as we know it. And he's going to destroy all his enemies in flaming fire of a different sort. And a lasting sword. And we shall all stand before the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ, which is taught in Matthew 25 and by our brother Paul over and over. May Jesus Christ be praised.